Chapter 3, The Four Revolutions To set the stage for the history of the future, it is natural to start by reviewing the history of the past, having regard only to the principal facts. I am trying to imagine what an historian of a million years hence engaged in preparing a universal history of the human race would select from our own past history as worthy of notice. I think he would select only occurrences where mankind has made a step forward which was never lost again. They might be called the irreversible stages. There would seem to have been four such stages in the development of humanity since the time when Homo sapiens came into existence. With the first three, everyone is familiar, so they need only be touched upon. But the fourth, which is quite as important, is so recent that it has almost escaped conscious notice. I shall call each of them a revolution, though the word is not meant to imply any extreme suddenness. In each, the germs may be detected long before, and it may have been a long time before they spread over the world. In some cases, the revolution has been made independently in different regions. The central feature of each revolution has been to make it possible for mankind largely to multiply in numbers. The first revolution occurred long before the dawn of history, and we can only conjecture its effects, though we can do this with confidence. It is the discovery of fire. By means of fire, cooking becomes possible, and so the difficulties of man through his extremely poor equipment of teeth can be overcome. The possibilities of diet are multiplied very many times, both because meat can be eaten that is not completely putrefied, and because many herbs thereby become digestible and nourishing. It can confidently be said that as soon as fire came into use, the earth could support a much increased population because so many more varieties of food became available. There was, of course, also a second use for fire in the heating of shelters, which was important, though by no means so important, since man could thereby live in the temperate and subarctic regions in a way that would not have been otherwise possible. The second revolution is the invention of agriculture. This dates from the Neolithic period, perhaps 10 or 15,000 years ago, so that a good deal is known about it. The tribes that had agriculture could provide themselves with food, both animal and vegetable, far more regularly than was ever possible for the hunters or food seekers. They would become much more free than the hunters from the difficulties of the seasonal cycle 
and could settle permanently in one place in much larger communities. Once again, with the invention of agriculture, there must have been a great expansion of populations. The third revolution is the urban revolution, the invention of living in cities. This revolution arose in several different places at different times and apparently independently. The chief places would perhaps be Egypt, Iraq, China, Mexico, and the earliest time was about 6,000 years ago. By the close association in cities, bringing with it the division of labor, the establishment of food stores, and the possibility of relieving local shortages through the regular operation of trade, it once again became possible greatly to increase the population. All this is, of course, in the historical period, and a great deal is known about it. So much indeed that there has been a tendency to study and to emphasize the differences between the various civilizations rather than their resemblances. In getting a true perspective of the world, it is important to remember that life in Egypt and life in China were far more alike than either was to life at the same period in Europe. On the analogy I made between human history and the molecules of a gas, the different civilizations are to be ranked as fluctuations from the average. They have gone in rather varied directions with the most interesting differences, but it is far more fundamentally important to notice not these differences, but the resemblances. The fourth revolution in human history is so recent that it has hardly been recognized because we are still in the middle of it so that we lack the perspective to compare it with the others. It may be called the scientific revolution for it is based on the discovery that it is possible consciously to make discoveries about the fundamental nature of the world so that by their means man can intentionally and deliberately alter his way of life. Our histories are so detailed and run so uniformly through this period that it has hardly been noticed as constituting a revolution. That it is so may be perceived by observing that the population of Britain has increased more than fourfold since 1800, and much the same is true of many other parts of the world, by no means exclusively among the white races. Moreover, during the last 150 years, the whole manner of living has been more changed than in the previous 1500 years. It is true that life in Western Europe in 1750 was material different, materially different from life in A.D. 100 in Italy. Gibbon notes, almost with surprise, that at its zenith, the population of Rome 
was considerably smaller than that of London in his own day. Since London, unlike Rome, was by no means unique among cities, this shows a considerable advance in the art of living close together on the ground, but it is likely that it was due to steady, though not revolutionary, improvements in transportation, in particular water transport, since this would make very much easier the transport of food in concentrated areas. In other matters too, of course, there were important changes such as printing and the military arts consequent on the use of gunpowder, but without belittling these changes, they were on an incomparably smaller scale than those witnessed between 1750 and 1950 in nearly all parts of the world. It would surely be just to say that London in 1750 was far more like Rome in AD 100 than like either London or Rome in 1950. Germs of the scientific revolution can of course be seen long before its actual birth, just as no doubt there was sporadic agriculture before the Neolithic revolution. There were discoveries and very useful discoveries then as now. Unfortunately, it was military science that seems to have progressed most. But there appears to have been little idea that discoveries or inventions could be deliberately made of such a character as really to alter the world. The germinating idea is to be found in the experiments of Galileo and in the writings of Bacon. But the revolution may be said to have been born at the time of the English Industrial Revolution, and in particular through the invention of railways. In this revolution, unlike the previous ones, we can have an exact knowledge of the effect on population. In a century, the population of England, in spite of much emigration, was multiplied by four, and this alone shows what an exceptional period it has been. For if the same factor of multiplication were to continue, the result would give a quite fantastically impossible increment in even a thousand years. The principal contributions to this revolution have come from the Atlantic seaboard and the greatest increments have therefore been among the white races, but the benefits have been shared by most other parts of the world. For example, the population of India used to be held in check by periodic famines and pestilences but the introduction of modern hygiene and the administration of the famine code made possible by railway communications have had the effect of increasing the population of India at a guess by a factor of more than two in a century. 
The central fact of this revolution has been the discovery that nature can be controlled and conditions modified intentionally. But just as the city may be regarded as the symbol of the urban revolution, so there is a symbol for the new one. It is the fact that the earth has become finite. There are no longer any frontiers containing the unknown, and nothing can happen in any part of the world which may not have important effects anywhere else. In the long past, there was always the danger of invasion from beyond the frontier by the army of some unknown and perhaps superior civilization. Or conversely, there was the possibility of the colonization of a vast, fertile, unoccupied country. There is still a very great uncertainty about what incursions there may be from other parts of the world. But the uncertainty is now one about human nature, no longer about geography. The finiteness of the world is one of the chief things that make it possible to foresee its future with a degree of confidence now that would have been impossible little more than a century ago. The word civilization signifies in its origin the mode of life connected with living in a city, and since there has been a great variety in the modes of life practiced in the different cities, it is reasonable to speak of many different civilizations. There are still very different modes of life in different parts of the world, but they are united throughout the whole world by the new knowledge and the new mode introduced by the scientific revolution. There is really need for another word to replace the word civilization, a word which would connote the universality of the new culture. But no such word has come into use, and I shall not attempt to invent one. If there were such a word, it would be accurate, and not cheaply cynical, to say that the fourth revolution has destroyed civilization, for it has replaced it by the new and superior mode of life. It is a natural question to ask whether there may not be other revolutions in store for humanity. The answer is that one future revolution is nearly a certainty, while there, there may well be others. The fifth revolution will come when we have spent the stores of coal and oil that have been accumulating in the earth during hundreds of millions of years. This will probably be well within a thousand years, a very much shorter period than the periods between the other revolutions. It is to be hoped that before then, other sources of energy will have been developed. The subject will be discussed in detail in the next chapter. But without considering the detail, it is obvious that there will be a very great difference in ways of life. After all, a man has to alter his way of life considerably 
when, after living for years on his capital, he suddenly finds he has to earn any money he wants to spend. Whether a convenient substitute for the present fuels is found or not, there can be no doubt that there will have to be a great change in ways of life. This change may justly be called a revolution, but it differs from all the preceding ones in that there is no likelihood of its leading to increases of population, but even perhaps to the reverse. What other revolutions in the remoter future may there be in store? This is perhaps not a very profitable speculation since such revolutions cannot be foreseen. If any one of them could, we should by the very fact be on the highway towards it. Nevertheless, with this caution in mind, it is interesting to make conjectures about the subject, bringing to bear on it the very considerable knowledge we now possess of the nature of the world round us, and allowing free reign to the imagination. There will no doubt be periods again when the world flourishes exceedingly, but these do not necessarily count as revolutions. The essential feature of a revolution is that there should be an irreversible change in the ways of life. Thus suppose, after the practice of agriculture had been well established, there had arisen a reversion from it over a great part of the earth. In consequence of this, so many people would have had to die that the remainder would certainly have seen the error of their ways and returned to the practice. The four past revolutions have all had this quality of irreversibility, and so has the fifth, which I have adumbrated. All these revolutions have been concerned with man's control over his external surroundings, and my first speculations will be as to possible extensions of this kind. It must first be recognized that the impulse of the fourth revolution is by no means exhausted yet. Even without any new discoveries at all, and new discoveries are being made every year, there would be very great changes still to come in the near future. The population of the earth could increase very greatly without any new discoveries at all. It might reach a level of density over many parts of the earth as great as it is now in the more populous regions. Even if this expansion were to take several centuries to come about, it should be counted as belonging to the fourth revolution. Future scientific discoveries may lead to other advances, but these could only be counted as belonging to a new and separate revolution. If the present series of advances came to an end and was followed by a period of comparative stagnation for a few thousand years, 
the most likely cause of another revolution would be the discovery of some new large source of human food. It might be found possible to synthesize food from its chemical elements, or it might, for example, be found possible to turn grass or wood into a satisfactory human diet. This would constitute a new revolution, the second scientific revolution, for the new food supplies would induce an enormous increase in population, and once the practice had become widespread, there could be no drawing back. I shall not consider the matter further here, since the question of food supplies is reviewed in a later chapter. Could there be any discovery in the arts, as opposed to the sciences, that might lead to a revolution? There will undoubtedly be many new and exciting discoveries in the arts. There will be new schools of painting, music, and literature, and these will contribute a great deal to the happiness of the world, or at any rate of a great many people in it. But they hardly seem to fall into the class of what I have called revolutions, for it does not seem that through them any radical change could arise, which would irreversibly alter the ways of life of hundreds of millions of the human race. It seems precisely in this condition of irreversibility that the arts fail, for in them, much more than in other branches of knowledge, there is a frequent tendency to revert to earlier models in this sense of reversibility is an important characteristic of the arts. There is another imaginable revolution which would occur if, by any means whatever, it were found possible to foresee the future with substantially greater accuracy than we can now, so that it might become possible to know with a good deal of confidence the most probable consequences of any proposed plan of action. It is what we all try to do even now as far as we can. It is indeed what I am trying to do in the present essay on the long-term scale. But I am imagining that some new discovery should make the process far more precise for the short-term planning. This might come about, for example, through the use of the new high-speed calculating machines, which in a short space of time might explore the consequences of alternative policies with a completeness that is far beyond anything that the human mind can aspire to achieve directly. If this were the way the revolution was made, it would have to count as yet another scientific revolution. But I do not want to exclude the possibility that it might all come about by some other non-scientific means, though it seems a good deal less probable that this should be so. I do not believe that the Delphic Oracle will be revived 
and if future famines are to be foreseen and avoided, it is far more likely that it will be done by scientific weather forecasting than through Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. However this may be, if the future could be more confidently predicted, it would evidently have an immense effect on world history. For example, no country would embark on a plan of rapid world conquest if it could foresee that the war would almost certainly end in a crushing defeat after six years. The possibility of making such predictions would have the real character of an irreversible revolution in the sense that no nation which had grown used to consulting the new and reliable augurs would ever revert to the haphazard methods which are all that we possess at present. These possible revolutions share with the past revolutions the quality that they would increase man's control over external nature. The fifth revolution, the shortage of fuel, which I have adumbrated, will in fact decrease it, but it will have the same character of being an external revolution. But there is also the possibility of an internal revolution. This would come about if means were discovered of deliberately altering human nature itself. I shall discuss this in later chapters after a closer review of the innate qualities of mankind. Here it must suffice to say that the process prospects do not seem at all good. There is first the extreme difficulty of making such changes and the probability that most of them would be for the worse. And secondly, if by chance a revolutionary improvement should arise, it seems all too likely that the rest of mankind would not tolerate the supermen and would destroy them before they had the time to multiply. It was mainly the belief that there will be no revolutionary change in human nature that emboldened me to write this essay. As I have said, these speculations about future revolutions are only the wildest conjectures. Leaving aside the unknown date of the fire revolution, we know that within the last, within the past 20,000 years, there have already been three revolutions. If this can be regarded as a precedent, it suggests that there should be a revolution at least every 10,000 years, that is to say, more than a hundred of them in the span of a million years. I confess to very considerable doubt as to the likelihood that there are so many revolutions in store for our descendants, but at any rate, it is hardly profitable to speculate further on the subject. End of chapter 3